Well, I've been, uh, this month, been giving some of these other guys a chance to bring the Word of God to you, and it's been such a blessing. Braden did a tremendous job last week, and uh, we passed great cards out for that, as well as tonight for Alex. Now I'm teasing, uh, but these guys do a great job, and I'm so proud of them. It's a joy to be able to serve alongside of them, and I uh, want to give them a chance to, to bring the Word of God as well to you. So uh, Alex is going to come to preach tonight. Make him feel welcome as he comes, brings a word to us. Also, 29 year, 29 yesterday, yeah. big birthday man, yeah, yeah so that's right. Yeah. I was telling someone uh, before I came up, I don't normally tell people when my birthday is, I let them pass it, and then they're like, oh, it was your birthday, I was like, yep, and then, uh, then I don't get a million people on the day of, but not that I would mind, I just I try to keep a low profile, and then I get announced from the pulpit, so... And my, my wife puts me on blast anyway. So, Well, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 1 tonight. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1. So if you would stand in honor of the word of God. We've just got one verse, so you guys won't be up forever tonight. One verse, we'll pray, and then you can be seated. All right, Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to read verse 18. Here's what it says. It says, Come now. And let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Dear Father, thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you for your word. God, we pray that as we open it up tonight, we would take stock of our lives. Pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who, who doesn't know you, they would realize that we can go from red like crimson to white as snow. In your precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. To open the sermon tonight, I, I thought, what better than a testimony? It's not like Sunday morning. I don't have people coming up to get baptized or anything, but uh, this is a Christian's testimony from 1850. So any language in this is not my fault. Uh, just, it's, it's from 1850. All right, so it says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. It says, I turned down a side street and I came to a little primitive Methodist church. And in that chapel, there have been a dozen or maybe 15 people. And I've heard of primitive Methodists, and he says how they sang loudly so bad that people's heads ached. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how to be saved. The minister did not come in that morning. He had been snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, don't, don't mind the resemblance, uh, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. Again, I didn't write it, it's his testimony. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason as he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Comes out of Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in the text. And when he had managed to spend for about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether, and he looked at me in the gallery. And dare say, with so few present, he knew I was a stranger. And just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my heart, he said, Young man, you look miserable. And well, I did. But I was not so accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow that struck right at home. He continued, and you will be miserable in life and in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do 
but look and live. You know, this is Charles Spurgeon's testimony. This is how he got saved. He was a young man, wasn't in his home church. He'd heard lots of theology, lots of things his whole life, but he needed to hear the gospel. He needed to hear that he could be saved, and he needed to look to Christ. It's pretty fitting, I felt like, to, he got saved from a sermon out of Isaiah, so we're in Isaiah, here we are. But you know, I've entitled what we will review tonight as the gospel according to Isaiah. Now, he did note his preacher who got up was not the most learned man, and so we're going to try to take a mix of the two approaches. I want to hit things on the nose. I want to tell you the truth of the gospel like it is, but we're going to talk to you about a couple things as well. To, to really understand the book of Isaiah well, which has affectionately been called the gospel of Isaiah, uh, we must understand the history and context in which Isaiah spoke. Isaiah, who is uh, often called the prince of the prophets, he... Uh, prophet being a spokesman from God to man, he spoke to Judah primarily, and then he also spoke to Israel and, and about the surrounding nations. But Isaiah is said to have been a prophet from about 740 BC to 681. And if those time frames mean anything to you, what I need you to know is it was during the time when the kingdom is divided. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. Ten of the tribes went up north, two went down south, uh, that being namely Judah and Benjamin. Now, the northern tribes had all wicked kings, all of them. They were worried if they, you know, served the Lord that people would go back to where the temple was. And does anyone know where the temple was? Jerusalem and Judah. Judah. They didn't really want that, so they worshipped everything else they could find. And, you know, Isaiah came at the time of two of the last kings of the northern kingdom. Again, both wicked. He then worked during the time of four kings in the south as well. And of those four kings, guess how many were good? Three of them. So it's weird, the book of Isaiah is this really long book, 66 chapters, and there's only one bad king in the mix, in theory. Actually, in, if we were to figure out who these four kings were, Isaiah 1.1 gives us a pretty good picture. If you look at it, it says the kings would have under, been understood to be Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, there are... Uh, some communications about which was the bad king. It's definitely Ahaz, by the way. Um, but it's interesting to know, when you open the book of Isaiah, Ahaz is talked about during chapters 7 through 14. Does anyone know what great verses we get out of 7 through 14? Can anybody name one great verse? Isaiah 7 what? 14. Yeah. Isaiah 9, 6, these great verses, the verses we talk about every Christmas time, about a virgin being with child, or there being a son born unto us, these were born under the tutelage of the most wicked king during Isaiah's time, potentially. It's almost like in great darkness, God can bring forth great light. Now, it's because of that, some people like to suggest there may have been a fifth king during Isaiah's reign or time as a prophet, I guess would be better to say. They would describe that fifth king to be from the one from chapters 40 to through 66, and that would be the wicked king Manasseh. Now, you may have heard of Manasseh, and if you know anything about the tradition, it says Manasseh sawed Isaiah in half. He was an evil man. But... That kind of makes sense when you see what happens in 40 through 66. You see, in the Bible, the first 39 books are what? Old Testament. We're going we're gonna to test you guys today. It's almost like I'm back in Awana. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you some questions. 
And how many books are in the New Testament? 27. All right. It kind of works the same way in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is split pretty well in two parts. The first 39 chapters and the last 27. And if you look at the book of Isaiah in the first 39 chapters, you've got God coming in judgment. And he's saying, this is the country and this is what they did and this is what's going to happen to them and this is how they're going to get taken out. And then when you get to chapter 40 through 66, his, his focus seems to change. He starts talking about this redeemer more. And not that there isn't any of that in the first chapters, but it comes up again and again and again. And you get some of the most incredible chapters in the whole Bible in 40 through 66. Now, I'm going to give you some background again into what's going on, and then we're almost done with that. So if you don't like history, you're safe. We're almost out of it. What's going on during the time of Isaiah from beginning to end is first Israel and Syria are coming together and they're attacking Judah. Israel and Syria, the northern kingdoms and Syria are coming together and they're attacking Judah. And Judah, not wanting to trust God, but to trust in what they can see and what they can grab a hold of, call out to Assyria, have Assyria try to step in. Assyria then does attack Israel and then comes back within a year later and it's starting to beat up on Judah. I guess that didn't work out so well. And as you walk through the book, you can see the problem with trusting in different alliances and other kings. In general, what you need to glean from the book of Isaiah is that sin had permeated their society. Even with good leaders, remember three of the four and where he's speaking are good leaders, the sin stuck with the people. And the problem during the time in Isaiah is the people were uh, left the one true king for everything else they could find. If it were pleasure, sin, any kind of protection they could get from any foreign king, the desires of personal gain at any moral cost. Man, Israel sounds a whole lot like America today. You know, we do a lot of the same things. We seek pleasure over godliness. This is how it looked like in their time, Isaiah 3, 8, and 9. It says, For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen. Because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord, they provoke the eyes of his glory. And they show of their countenance doth witness against them. And they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Man, we are in a place where we declare our sin out loud like Sodom. We're not ashamed of anything. Shame is a word that has been lost on our culture. As a matter of fact, in America today, people would defend Sodom and call God a moral monster for trying to destroy it. You see, we, like Israel, trust in other people than God. We trust in billionaires. Elon Musk's going to come save free speech. Or, you know, Donald Trump's going to come turn everything around. We trust world leaders, people who have doctor in front of their name. God forbid celebrities. Look, I don't care who Taylor Swift endorsed for president. It doesn't matter. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I'm glad that was your, that was your question. And worse yet, we trust in ourselves. You know, I don't care how good the jokes were. Chuck Norris is not coming to save anybody. I don't care what letters are in front of your name. It can mean very little. I heard somebody say this quote. It said, dumb is still dumb, even when someone smart says it. And over the last few years, we've seen a lot of people with doctorate in their name say some things that are not very smart. Like, you can't get COVID if you drop 18 inches and start eating and breathing on people. Whatever. Nonetheless, that's why Psalm 118, 8, and 9 says, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. 
As we come into this Christmas season in America, we've often worshipped gifts instead of Christ. We've often worshipped anything other than him. Everything becomes about the bigger, the better, what they want, what they don't want, instead of spreading the message of the ultimate gift that was ever given, the reason for the season. And in Isaiah 1, and even throughout the book, we get a picture of God's desire to see people redeemed. It brings me to our first point tonight. Come now, let us reason together. Now it says, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And I'm actually going to do this in reverse. Let's talk about saith the Lord. We serve a God who speaks to humanity. Praise God. God has communicated with us. Think throughout the scripture, the manifold times it says, thus saith the Lord. Think about all the times it says, the Holy Ghost spake by, and insert prophet names here. Um, Now, if you're looking for insert prophet names here in your Bible, I'm sorry to tell you, nothing is going to come up in your search bar. Um, Or even think about all the times it says, it is written. We have a communicated word of God. And this is of great benefit to us. Psalm 119, 160, it says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. You know what? Because God cannot lie, because he ever exists, because his decrees will come to pass, we know about God, we can know about ourselves, and we can know about objective truth. Yes, that exists. Listen to Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. First, oh, before I get there, on top of God's word being true, he's proven it true. This is really cool. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, and a man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, and will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will also do it. Do you understand that God's predictions in the Bible are so good that unbelieving scholars have to assume it was written in later because they can't believe how on point it is. God talked about the rising up and setting down of nations that hadn't even risen up yet. As a matter of fact, in the book of Isaiah, he talks about the destruction of the Babylonians, who currently aren't even a people worth noting. They were under the thumb of the Assyrians. They come up, they destroy the Assyrians, and they wouldn't do this for an extended period of time. The Babylonians eventually take over the Israelites, and then even from that point on, it's another 40 years, 50 years after that, that they get beat. God prophesied the destruction of the Babylonians 150 years before they were even going to take over. God prophesied the raising up and setting down of the Babylonians by the Medes. God prophesied the raising up and and putting down of the Medes by the Greeks. God prophesied Alexander the Great and the fact that his kingdom would be split up into four kingdoms. Hundreds of years before it happened. God showed his word is true. When God says something happened, even when we don't find evidence for it yet, we find it later, and then we're like, huh, it's what a coinkydink. I can't believe it. It happened again. But you know, one of my favorite parts of Isaiah is that this is the exact challenge he gives to the idols, to the people who trust in their man-made gods. He tells them to tell the future, to explain the past, because our God can do it. Once again, we have a God who speaks, but what does he say? He tells us about himself. We learn of his character. We learn what he's like. 
We, he tells of his, of his plans. Praise God, we know, Genesis 3.15, we didn't sin and that was it. We know he's got a plan. He tells us about his law so we can know how to rightly interact with him and how to know when we're off. He tells us of our faults. And you know what? He's right when he says it, no matter how much it makes us uncomfortable. And the best news yet, and we see here, he still tells us to come. Think about the verse, come now, let us reason together. We serve a God who invites humanity to communion with him. From the beginning, God made us to be with him. We were in the garden. He would walk with us in the cool of the day. He would interact with us until, you know, Adam and Eve ruined it. We could have worked without the sweat of our brow. It would have been great. Would have been great. Man messed it up, but even then, God promised a way back. And then God began injecting himself in history because God had a plan. God was going to get man back in communion with him. God worked through men like Noah. God worked through the Tower of Babel when they refused to do what God said and spread out. And he says, fine, I'll spread you out. God worked through the patriarchs. He had an interaction with people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He worked in all these scenarios and all these ways. He made for himself a people that went and were slaves in Egypt. He redeemed them from one of the most powerful countries of the time. He sent prophets like Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all these people to come and tell the truth of God. He gave them opportunity to be in his presence, even if only a few of them, giving a tabernacle, a temple, a place where they could go and meet with God, where they could know their sins were covered, where things were made right, where they could interact with him and ultimately send his own son one of the beautiful things about the book of Isaiah. We get great insight into that. And just kind of as a side note, the other thing, he says, let us reason together. It's really funny to me when I talk to people who don't believe in the Bible and they think Christians can't stand reason. Like You don't know who my God is. (laughs) Uh, My God encourages you to use your brain. Matter of fact, he made you with one and wishes you would use it more often. (laughs) He wishes I'd use mine too. Um, But see, God's not the illogical answer. He is the only logical answer. That's why Romans 1, 20 through 22 says things like, For the invisible things of him are seen from the creation of the world. They are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God says it's so clear Shouldn't be any question. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful. But they became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Man, isn't that what we've seen? It's the people who say, there is no God. It's the people who say, oh, well, I'm too smart for that old superstition. They're the ones who think God's illogical, and I'm like, you literally think you poofed out of nothing. I, I can't ever forget, I know uh, I've heard some pastors say they were door knocking, and, and this guy, you know, had been really abrupt with them, and, and he said, you know, I came to see you, You're, your name's in the Bible, and he's like, it is? And so he's like, yeah, Psalm 14.1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Probably not the most effective witnessing tool. Please don't do that. Um, But it's stuck in my head. Um, But better yet, in this portion, the word reason more so has the idea of coming together to convince someone of something. You see, God wants us to see from his vantage point. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be like crimson, they shall be made white as snow. So again, God speaks with us. He tells us, come, have communion with him. He encourages us to reason together with him, which brings us to our second point. What do we see when we see from God's vantage point? 
we see sins like crimson. Isaiah 1, 18b, uh, it says, Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Your sins there is translated by the Hebrew word hate. Say that five times fast. Um, it, has been inter- it has an interesting set of meanings. It, it, it means sin, but it also means guilt for sin and punishment for sin. So not only is he talking about your sin, but he's talking about all the consequences of it. And interestingly enough, this is exactly what's used in Isaiah 53, 12. Listen to this. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many. He bore your sin, he bore the guilt, he bore the punishment and made intercession for the transgressors. It sure is good that Christ takes not only our sins, but he can also take the guilt, can also take the punishment. Our sins are stark. They're red like crimson, red like scarlet. And you know, it's not really a color to blend in. Unless you're at an Ohio State game or, you know, Alabama somewhere, I don't know. You're probably not blending in with those colors. It stands out. Imagine a a canvas that's white and somebody runs by and throws red paint on it. You're not going to miss it. You're going to be like, what happened to my painting? (laughs) You know, I I like to draw. And I remember I was at home one night and I had been drawing an eagle. And I don't know why I got to this point, but I started drawing in pen instead of pencil, so I can't even erase it. But I was drawing an eagle, and I really liked it. It was going well. And I left it out on the table, and I went to sleep and went to work the next day and came back to work on it again. And one of my lovely children (laughs) had colored and scrawled in colored pencil all over it. And not like inside any lines, but just like... So I have an eagle with pink lines all over it. And think about just how stark that would be. Many of you have probably heard of The Scarlet Letter. And even if you've not read the book, which I'm going to be honest, I haven't read it, the concept is something that really happened. The practice was used by the Puritans, and here's what it was. The people that are caught in a grievous sin are forced to wear a letter. It's not always scarlet in their time, but sometimes it was. And it would have a letter that had to do with what sin they'd committed. And the most common one was for adultery. When you hear the scarlet letter, you think of a big red A put on their clothing. Man, what would happen if God made us actually write our sins out on our clothes so that everyone could see them? I'm glad that doesn't happen for us. Other sins they would do that for, but that was the most common that we know about. It was then used to shame people towards repentance and to let people know, hey, don't get yourself in trouble with that person. But now, a lot of times we paste our own sins on our clothes. I mean, we have a whole month where we just write pride all over everything and we do all kinds of things where we are just excited about our sin. We have lewd statements all over our clothing. We'll have hopefully clothing. But you know what? Even for those who don't, even for those who are not excited to show their sin to the world, maybe it's like what you can see under a black light versus what you can't. I can't tell you how scary a black light can be. (laughs) But What does God see? He says, your sins are as scarlet. They're as crimson. I've had an idea for a shirt, so if anyone can do this, this would be really cool. You make it red, and maybe in black or something, you start writing sins on it, and as you fade to the back of the shirt, it goes white, and then in red lettering it says, or in in the front it says, 
though your sins be like crimson. In the back, it's white with red lettering. It says, you shall be made white as snow. God sees our sin, even if others don't. And we like to pretend God doesn't see us. You know, it's funny, and, and we do it too, but Israel did this. They would put the characteristics of God on an idol and put the characteristics of an idol on God. They would pretend the idol could see and save and move, and they would pretend that God couldn't. And look how backward it was. Isaiah 44, 8 through 10, it says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses, and they see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God or a molten or graven image? that is a profitable for nothing. You see, the sins all throughout the book of Isaiah, and there's many, and maybe we'll just start with chapter 1. First, we're going to see the Israelites have forgotten God. Isaiah 1-2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken, and I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. As you continue, it, it says, The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Even an animal knows who its master is, but not us, not Israel, not, and not the people of God today sometimes. They then, on top of not remembering their God, they would maybe bring an offering, but an empty one. Think about this. Isaiah 1, 11 through 13. To what purpose is your multitude of sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come and appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. Your new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. You know what's the grossest to God? It's not people in sin. It's people who play at religion. It's people who want a show of looking right, and they don't want to actually be right. These people were faithful to some degree to attend religious services, to sacrifice animals. That would have cost money. It would have cost what they had. Some people are like, well, I tithe or I, I've been there every Sunday. I'm like, that's great. Do you know Jesus? Because that's not getting you nowhere. But the question is, do you really intend to follow him? What about us? What about you? Is your worship empty? Do you attend just because do you attend without any relationship with Christ? Do you expect God to be proud when you aren't actually giving him what he really wants? You. Isaiah 117 kind of gives some insights. The, the hypocrisy wasn't just what the people were doing when they were at church, but what they weren't doing when they weren't at church. He said, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. You know, if our religion only makes us be here on Sunday, it's pretty worthless. If it doesn't change how we live outside of these walls, what good is it? It's just mechanical and dead. As you continue through Isaiah, you see many sins. You see people who are greedy for gain. You see people who follow after idols, and God really hammers idols. I don't know if you understand, this is one of the, the main things. When the people are coming into the land, he's like, hey, watch out for idols. Don't intermarry. Don't get in the idols. Don't sacrifice your children. Okay? Big thing. Don't do it. Isaiah 44, 16 to 17. He that burneth thereof in the fire, with part thereof eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, and is satisfied, yea, he warmeth himself. 
and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even a graven image, and he falleth down thereunto and worshipeth and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. And they can't see how silly it is. Now, most of the time we read things like that and we're like, well, yeah, that is silly. We don't do anything like that. Man, we bow down to that almighty dollar an awful lot. What would you do for a dollar? Ten. Twenty. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people selling the rest of their futures for trying to make a, a quick buck. And it's going to ruin them. They would sacrifice their children. King Ahaz did this. 2 Kings 16. By the way, if you ever want to go and figure out what's going on, uh, 2 Kings 15 through 21 lines up with Isaiah's time frame. But 2 Kings 16. 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, like David his father. But he walked into the way of the king's I'm sorry, he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Yea, and he made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. In case that's not clear enough, there was a god named Molech. Hands out like this. You put a baby on it. You light the fire inside it. It would scorch the baby and kill it. And we think that's really gross, and we think that's awful, and we live in a country where probably more babies have been killed than anywhere else at any time. It's incredible. They are indulging in excesses of alcohol. Isaiah 28.1, Woe to the crown of pride and to the drunkards of Ephraim. That's the, another name for the northern tribes, by the way whose glorious beauty is as a fading flower, who are on the head of the fat valleys of them and are overcome with wine. They expressed false worship. Isaiah 48.1, Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by my name of Israel, and are come forth from the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel. That all sounds really great. But not in truth, nor in righteousness. Man, that really reminds me of Romans when he says, you know, they've got a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Because they don't know God, they don't know righteousness, and so they go about trying to establish their own righteousness. They don't care about their fellow man. We've talked about this a little bit. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness and to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, when that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Man, we need to get a care for other people. And not just their physical, but we need that too, but their spiritual as well. Friend, what sins are written on you? It's really easy to look at Israel or the people in the past and say, man, how could they do that? It's really easy to not realize when we point the finger, these three are pointing back at us. We have sinned. And God's not mocked. He sees the sins we do even when no one else does. He sees our evil thoughts and tents, and everything will be judged. And the first step to being made right is admitting where you're wrong. You have to admit, like, hey, I've been doing that. God says that's wrong. He's right. That's wrong. I shouldn't have been doing that. And the third point that I want to get to is white as snow. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, though they be, or though their sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. All right, I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to respond back. Ready? What can wash away my sin? What? Whoever's singing it, thank you. 
Here, I'll sing it to you then for the second part, and you sing it back. What can make me whole again? Thank you. Now, how would the Jew have answered it? That was written originally to them. It wasn't written originally to us. How would they have answered it? Well, they, they understood repentance. They understood, I need to quit doing what's wrong. I need to turn back to the Lord. They knew that God had made a promise. They knew they had to have faith in the one true God and, and be not going off into this sin. They understood repentance and faith toward God. But you see, in this book, in the book of Isaiah, we also have so many prophecies for the one that they're awaiting. This is a beautiful thing. We're just going to go quickly through prophecies of God. We're, I've got like 12 of them. We're just going to move. The Messiah would be both man and God. Isaiah 7.14. Oh, by the way, remember, this is happening during King Ahaz's time, who is killing his own children. But God's promising there's a son coming that's going to make things right. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. How can somebody born be God? Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It says, And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Again, he is the mighty God, but he's born. And not only is he born, he seems to be from the line of David. How does this happen? What is this? Well, he would have a forerunner. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He would be an offense to the Israelites, Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, both of the houses of Israel, for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. He would bring light to unexpected places. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 I'm going to kind of skip through this, but it says, To the afflicted in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, says, In the way beyond the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death hath light shined. You know, it's called Galilee of the nations because it's right up where the other nations are. It's like the border areas. And nobody expects anything good to come out of there. That's the first place to get taken over. That's the first place to be lost. It's... And when Jesus comes in, and he does all this miracle work, all this wonderful light in Galilee. Isaiah 11.10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, and it shall be... And that sh and to it shall the Gentile seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Man, that's an unexpected turn of events. The Gentiles. In this place we wouldn't expect, to the Gentiles, what is going on? He would be empowered by God's spirit and wisdom. Isaiah 11, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isn't that what we've seen? He would heal infirmities. Isaiah 35, 5-6 then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and then the lame man shall leap as the heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing in the wilderness, for waters break out and streams in the desert. He will come with grace and mercy and truth. Isaiah 42, 1-3 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold mine elect, 
in whom my soul delighteth. He says, I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment unto the Gentiles. That goes back to that unexpected thing. He shall not cry nor lift up his cause or his voice be heard in the street. But note this, a bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, but he shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He would not be physically desirable. Isaiah 53, we're going to go into 50, 50 and 53 quite a bit here, but Isaiah 53, 2-3, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and we despised him, and we esteemed him not. Man, when Jesus came, they were expecting him to come in conquering. They expected him to be this wonderful winner, essentially. And when it was just some guy from Galilee, from Nazareth, what's going on? He would suffer beatings, Isaiah 55 and 6. And the Lord God hath opened mine ear. I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You see, he suffered silently, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before his shears is dumb in judgment. And who shall declare his... I skipped something there. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't sit there and whine and complain about how unfair he was. He would take our place Verses 4 through 6. Surely he hath borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The enchastisement of his peace, of our peace, was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turn every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'm going to teach you a secret, and this is kind of cool and kind of not so much because it might be semi-manufactured. In the last section of the Bible, I told you the last 27 chapters are like the New Testament. It's broken into three equal sections, all nine chapters. You've got the first nine, the middle nine, the last nine. If you pick the middle section and the middle verse of the middle section, it's Isaiah 53, 6. And understand what God wants you to know out of this book he has borne our iniquity. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 covers it as well. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make an, his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You know, he's going to have a unique death and burial as well. Isaiah 53, 8, 9, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He was made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. Think about how he died. In the midst of thieves, put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He would be raised again to rule. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and I will divide spoil with the strong, and he will, shall divide spoil with the strong. Let me ask you this. How do you divide spoil with a dead person? He's already said he's been killed for the iniquity of the people. How do you give him anything? How do you divide a portion with him? Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Imagine to that moment where he's sitting there, where they're driving the nails in, where they're mocking him, and he says, you know what? God forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And you know, we may not have been there, but those sins that we have, that scarlet lettering on us that nobody can see, there's a reason why Mel Gibson in The Passion of the Christ wanted to be the soldier who pinned the nails. And little do we realize we put him there just as much as anyone else. But you know the good news is he gives hope. Isaiah 61, 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison to them that are bound. You know, Christ has good news to proclaim. And when he's born... What do they say? The angels come in, they say, we bring glad tidings of good news. Christ is born this day in the city of David. In conclusion, today the call is no different. Christ is calling you who are still in your sin to come and trust him. Today, I want you to understand, I get to play the ambassador in Christ's stead. Come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as crimson, he can make them white as snow. Friend, humble yourself. Actually, Isaiah 66, 2 says, He looks for him who's of a humble and contrite spirit, who trembleth at his word. Understand, he says your sins are red. That's what he sees. But the good news, according to Isaiah, is that in the Lord there is salvation. You know, it's sad to me that Spurgeon had to go around waiting for someone to tell him how to be saved. If you're not familiar, his family was preachers. They, he grew up reading theology. Friend, look to Jesus. There is no other salvation but in Christ. Understand, Christ came, he died, he rose again, and he can make you white as snow if you come and put your faith in him. If you would turn from sin and believe in Christ. Now, if you're a Christian here, understand sin is heinous, and we must get away from it. We can't play with it. And although you're going to fail like I do and like you do, there's still good news. When we get saved, God casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And Charles Spurgeon had this quote, and this is how I'll end it. And the musicians can come, and, and we'll do an altar call. Charles Spurgeon said this, God is more ready to forgive than I am ready to offend. Praise God for that.